Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and we're continuing our trek together through the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. It's the very last book in the Old Testament, if you want to turn there in your own Bibles. So we go to the Old Testament, especially to the prophets, because we get this rare opportunity in the prophets where we have someone who is coming as an insider critiquing insiders. Very often there is this idea that the church's job is to go out there and stand on the street corners and yell to the world to, you know, shape up and clean up and then come get grace. And this is not that at all. This is Malachi as one of God's people coming to those who claim to be God's people and critiquing and showing where their lives don't necessarily match their confession. And so it's good for us to come to have this critique from these Old Testament prophets. So if you want to turn there in your own Bibles, you're welcome to. It's found on page 10 in your order of worship there. And if you'd like to use the Bible there on the chair in front of you, you can turn to page 753 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you at home, please feel free to go ahead and um, take that home with you as our gift. Now, before we get to the text, I want to get us into the, into the feel of the text here by asking some questions here. So first of all, why does it seem like the bad guys win so often? Or how about this question? Why does that mean person you know make so much money? How come the ungodly seem to have easier lives? These kind of questions are not out of bounds. These are real life questions for real faith. In fact, the book of Psalms has several Psalms who ask these exact questions. However, there is a way that we can bring our hearts to these kind of questions and, and the attitude of our hearts could be out of bounds, so to speak, even if the questions themselves are not. And that's what we're going to see in the text today, that in asking these questions, the people of Malachi's day, they show that they don't actually trust God's character. They actually out loud doubt his goodness, they doubt his power, and they doubt his justice. So with that, would you please turn with me now to Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17 and going through chapter 3, verse 5. And I'll be reading on page 10 from the ESV. <clears throat> you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is God's word. Let's pray together. 
Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Fathers, we come before your word this morning. Once again, we ask that you would indeed, Lord, open this text up to us. May we see ourselves as we are. May we see your gospel in all its glory, in Jesus and all his beauty. We pray, Father, you would do this by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So where have we been in the book of Malachi? Well, the idea so far in the book of Malachi has been the one word, fearlessness. What in our culture is so often seen as a good thing for them was the bad things. They had no fear of the Lord. And so they came to him fearlessly in worship, giving him whatever they thought was appropriate. They had fearless sacrifices where God said, bring me clean, pure animals, and they brought him roadkill and thought he should be happy. They had fearless priests who were allowing them to do all this because they were afraid of the people more than they were afraid of God. And so the whole idea is like, y'all don't fear me, and that's a problem. And then in chapter two, we see that this actually plays out in their practical life where it bears fruit in all of these cruel divorces where these Hebrew men were casting off their Hebrew wives in order to get with pagan wives who had more resources and gave them a better life, they thought. Malachi comes in and says, God was the witness at your marriages and you don't even care that he enforces those vows. And so when they do these things and life doesn't get any better for them, they then come and they complain against God. And that gets us to our theme for today, how we're gonna kind of wrap this text up. That's this. When we slander and complain, our wearied God shows up with grace. And we're going to see here that in answer to their complaints, they get a wearied messenger who will enforce a real purity culture on them to prepare them for a fearful judgment. So jumping right in, the very first thing we see here is a wearied messenger. They come to God and they complain, hey, all the bad guys are doing well, while in Israel life is really hard for us. They've been complaining to God about this for a long time. And so God comes to them and he says literally in the Hebrew, y'all have worn me out. Another translation that I really like, the guy translates it as y'all have annoyed me, which as any parent knows can be said to your children in love. And as God does here. You see, Malachi is organized around these confrontations where God comes and he brings a very hard truth to his people and his people look back to him and they basically kind of give a snarky, whatever, how? Show me that. We haven't done that. And this is one of them right here. He comes and they say, how have we done that? And so God answers them. Y'all have annoyed me by questioning my character, by questioning my motives, by impugning who I really am. You know, this is one of those places where we can come to the Bible, we can actually get a life application. You know, very often the Bible is actually about Jesus, it's not about us, but there are times when there's something so clear like, this is wisdom and y'all should do this. And this is one of them. Especially young people, hear me as you're getting more and more encountering adults and having adult conversations. When there's a disagreement, don't impute motives to the other person. You don't know their heart. You don't know what they were thinking. You only know what they did. And very often when there's a conflict, it's actually not over what happened objectively. It's about the subjective story we made up about why they did it, isn't it? Isn't it? That person did not get up that morning and say, he passes this intersection at this time every day. I will make sure to pull in front of him and go as slow as possible. 
They don't know you exist, right? But we tell ourselves this story and we just get behind the wheel and we just see that that other driver. Or on social media, if you ever get told the, the, just, the, just the lovely privilege of watching a comment war, have you ever noticed it's not about what actually happened? It's about the motives. Well, you meant this or you made me. Blah, don't do that, okay? Life 101, don't do that because that's what God's people do here. They assume the worst of God and they impute bad motives to him. They basically say in verse 17, well, all the bad people are doing well, so you know what that means. God prefers evil, not the good. And he's not really concerned with justice. He is not a good God of justice. He is an evil God of injustice because those are the people that are doing well. See, they've missed the whole point of chapters one and two in this book. They're the bad guys. Malachi comes to them and basically says, y'all are the villains in this story right now. You're the covenant breakers. They worship terribly. They live hypocritically. They think little of God. They've been unjust to each other and unjust to him. They are the problem with the covenant, not God. And so when they snarkily whine, where's the God of justice? The very next word in chapter three, literally in Hebrew is, here I am, behold me. They complain for justice. God promises that he will come and fix it. Look with me at verse one there in chapter three. What does he say? He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God answers their desire for justice here with mercy. Did you pick up on that? They asked, where's the God of justice? Well, he's coming. But first, he sends, he says, a preparatory messenger because they are not ready for him to come in justice. What a testimony to his character. They've impugned him. They foolishly asked for a God of justice. And so God says, okay, I'm gonna come, but I'm gonna prepare you for justice to preserve you from justice. Remember, they've worn him out. They've annoyed him. How do you and I treat our kids immediately after we've been really annoyed? Yeah, it's usually something we have to repent of later, right? But look at God. He's worn out. He's annoyed. And his reaction is still kindness to them. Oh, I'm kind of come in justice. But let me come prepare you first so I can preserve you in it. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse. I'm going to ask you to throw it back up here on the slide. I want to walk through a couple things because there's a lot going on here. I'm going to draw your attention and you can see the parts that are italicized. So let's see. God's talking. He says, behold, I send my messenger... So God is talking. He's going to send his messenger. He, the messenger, will prepare the way before me. So notice God is actually coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So it's his temple. So again, that Lord person must also somehow be God. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we've got three people here. We've got God talking. We've got this messenger who's going to come. We've got God showing up to his temple the one that we, we delight and a promise that he's going to come. So there's lots of stuff going on here. What do we do with this? Well, we could spend the next 30 minutes kind of going through all of this and figuring it out. Or, as I said earlier, let's see if you can remember this, what's the best interpreter of Scripture? 
Scripture itself, that's right. So we could belabor it or we just go to the New Testament because the New Testament tells us Matthew 11, Jesus Christ himself, in more than one spot, Matthew 11 is an easy one. He quotes this verse. He grabs this verse out of Malachi, points to John the Baptist and says, it's him. He is the messenger that was sent, that was promised. And who did John the Baptist prepare the way for? For Jesus. And Jesus has called himself God in many places. So here is Malachi chapter three. It's about Jesus coming. God says, I'm gonna send John the Baptist to prepare the way for my son, Jesus himself, who will enter his temple as the messenger of the covenant. Now, they don't know all of that. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. They don't know all of that. We have the 2020 vision of the New Testament. We have several places in the New Testament that grabs us and tells us what it means. So we get to know that he is talking about this beautiful picture that's coming. But for them, what's going on here? How is this an answer to their wanting justice? Well, years and years ago, our our oldest daughter, when she was in piano lessons, she, as most little people do who are taking an instrument, they did not want to practice, right? right? Kids do not like to practice. So she, we had to, it was always a battle. So finally one day she just, very stubborn, I don't know where she got it from, probably her mom. Anyway, she just, she's super stubborn. She just refused not to do this. And so I sat her down and I, one of those rare moments where the Lord's like, let's not act like Sean. Let me give you some wisdom here. And so I, instead of getting real stubborn back because she got the stubbornness from, you know, um, I instead said, hey, I want you to do me a favor, Shaylee. I want you to shut your eyes. I want you to see yourself in a really pretty dress. Do you see it? Okay, I want you to see yourself sitting down at this huge grand piano. Do you see it? Yeah. Okay, I want you to see yourself now looking off to your right, and there are hundreds of people there who have paid money to come see you. And I want you to see yourself standing up and curtsying and just thunderous. Can you see it? And just going through this whole dream with her. And I'm not gonna say it, all of a sudden she started practicing again, but it made practicing easier because I put this dream in front of her of something that the drudgery of practice could help her, help her endure all that. And that is what God does for his Old Testament people here. He puts this beautiful picture in front of them in Malachi 3.1 where he says, I'm going to come to you one day and I'm gonna fix all this junk by fixing you. And I'm going to do it myself. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls. I want to make sure you all get this. So boys and girls, let's look on the middle of page 10 together. Okay, right there, it says this. All right then, I myself will send a special messenger to make everything ready for me to come. That's right. The Lord you ask for, the special person who proves my love will show up as a happy surprise. He is coming, I promise, as your strong God. What a beautiful thing. They attacked his goodness. They called him evil. They demanded justice, and in response, he looks into their future and lifts their eyes to this dream of what one day, Sunday, when God himself would come so that God could make his people acceptable by executing justice on his own son. Because when we slander, when we complain, our wearied God shows up with grace. But that grace isn't always what we expect. It comes here with a purity culture in the next couple verses. He asks in verse two, who can stand before this coming one, this messenger of the covenant, the Lord coming to his temple? Who can stand? 
And the assumed answer is no one. And why? Well, look with me at verse 3. We can't stand because he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now, for their culture, you sat if you had authority. Typically, if you're going to teach you in our culture, you stand, they sat. And we still have this today for judges. We all rise when the judge comes in, and then he sits to give judgment. That's the picture they had here. The judge is coming, and he's going to sit, and we don't stand before him. And why? Because he's going to purify us with fire. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist points to Jesus, and he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It sounds super harsh, doesn't it? But does a refiner want to destroy with his fire? Does a refiner of silver want to burn up so there's no silver left? No, he wants to make it better. A refining fire is a fire that makes better. I want to give you an example of this. So 15 years ago when Hurricane Katrina hit, remember, remember that one? It just hit right towards New Orleans, just decimated that part of Louisiana. And the southern part of the state of Mississippi is one gigantic pine forest. And as you know, pine trees and high wind equals a mess because they're just like paper mache. So I lived in North Mississippi, volunteered with my church, and we went down and we just started clearing up wood all around Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So we had chainsaws and we were wearing chainsaws out. And one morning we were out in the field somewhere and it was my turn to stand under the tree and support the guy who's in the tree with the chainsaw. It runs out of gas, so he lowers the chainsaw down on a, on a rope for me, and I, instead of grabbing the handle, I, in all my intelligence, grabbed the rope. And what happened was, as soon as I grabbed the rope, the chainsaw pivoted around, and the blade, which was super hot from all this friction, just grabbed me right here on my lat and just put a dollar bill-sized burn right there, just it stank, it, it burned, you could actually hear the sizzle, yeah, it was great. Um, and it hurt a lot, and so I went to the nurse on site because we were gonna be out in the field for another 10 hours, and she looked at it, and she was one of those older nurses who's been around a lot, who knows a lot of like actual real nursing, you know, not the stuff in the textbooks, like the real stuff. And she goes, all right, and she leans down, she grabs a bottle of French's yellow mustard, and she goes, you're gonna hate me for about 20 seconds, so clench up and just smeared it on there. And she was right, um, I did. It was such intense, horrible pain for about 20 seconds. And then you know how burns always hurt forever? Like if your clothes touch it, it just stings, right? No, after 20 seconds, the pain went away. It didn't hurt for hours and hours. It was great. See, one burning destroyed tissue. The other burning helped preserve. Now, I know I gotta finish the story because you're super curious. I looked it up. The vinegar basically overstimulates the raw nerve cells and they just kind of stop working. And the yellow gooey stuff in the mustard holds the vinegar in place long enough for it to do that. There you go. Not a doctor, but it worked. I lived it. So anyway. There's a burning that was good. That 20-second intense burning was a good, refining, purifying, getting rid of the pain burning. And that's what the Lord promises to bring his priests. He's going to come and he's going to refine those nasty, fearless priests into being pure priests who fear him. The sons of Levi who have led this nation into this sorry state in Malachi's day. The burning will begin with them and it will extend outward and purify all of God's people. And note that verse four begins with then, because Malachi shows that God himself takes the action. He's gonna purify the priests, and then 
his unacceptable, complaining people are made acceptable again. After the priests are purified by this coming Lord, then God's people will be pleasing to him, able to worship him like they used to do. All of that junk from verses or from chapters one and two is refined right out of him. Do you, do you see the grace? They complain, they impugn his character, they demand justice, and he comes and says, I will fix you. That's your justice. Not punish, I'll fix. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse three and four on page 10 there. It says this, his job will be to burn away all the unfaithfulness and junk from my priests, making them as pure and shiny as gold so they will worship me the right way. Then they will lead my people into the kind of worship that pleases me like they used to. See, boys and girls, he's gonna come and make them better. He's gonna purify them and make them shiny so that they're pleasant. Now, all that's true, but it's incomplete. What we know, what Malachi doesn't know is that this coming one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will actually be the ultimate priest, won't he? And he doesn't sacrifice animals. No, this priest sacrifices himself to accomplish this purity. In order to make God's people refined, he puts himself on the line. He doesn't come to destroy, he comes to purify. Jesus actually accomplishes the justice they call out for by taking that destruction upon himself. So God's justice won't destroy them. They don't know that, but we get to know that. And so do you see it as you read through this passage? Do you see it that when we slander and when we complain, our wearied God shows up with grace? We need to remember that because the passage actually ends in fearful judgment. It begins with another then, which points again to grace. Wait, you just said it's judgment. How is it grace? Well, what's before verse five is verse four. Remember what happened in verse four? God cleansed his people, making them pleasing again. See, he, so he cleaned them up first and, and then he comes in judgment. They asked for God the judge to come and instead of coming as the judge immediately, he first comes as a gracious purifier. Then once they are re- refined, he comes in judgment so they're not destroyed. See, that's grace right there. Look at me at verse five. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This list kind of stings, doesn't it? It shows individual failings and it shows community failings. See, it's not just about their heart, it's about their society this text began with God's people accusing him of injustice but it ends with God coming in accusing his people of injustice and here's why it stings because those of us in a relationship to God those of us who placed our faith and trust in Christ as we live out our lives we tend to fall into this pattern of having two lists of sins important sins and unimportant sins I mean, never say this out loud, but we operate this way. You know you do. The important sins are the ones other people struggle with. Unimportant sins are the ones I struggle with. And verse five won't let us do that. Notice how it splits it up. 
right? You got individual issues, you got social issues, you got sorcery, adultery, lying. Those are big deal things. I mean, two of those are in the top 10 commandments, right? Sorcery and adultery in the law of Moses carried the death penalty. These are a big deal. And yet they're in the same list as underpaying a worker, being cruel to the powerless, casting aside someone of questionable immigration status. Really? Those are in the same list? I mean, conservatives, right? We're all over the beginning of this, right? Speak truth to the immoral. Character counts. Integrity matters. But at the same time, you notice how it also resonates with those of a more progressive bent because it's totally speaking truth to power, isn't it? See, what's going on here is the very start of this passage, chapter 2, verse 17. The complainers assumed they had the moral high ground. They were doing all the religious stuff. They were showing up. God wasn't showing up. They were doing the things. He wasn't giving them the blessing. So they set themselves up as the judge in verse 17. They summon God to the dock to defend himself. So here in verse 5, God says, no, actually, I will draw near to you for judgment. And then he pulls the rug out from under them, showing that they are covenant breakers, their whole society. The hardcore conservatives, he shows them, and the less than conservative, he shows them, says, everything is messed up and under my judgment. You are the ones who've broken covenant. See, that's why he lumps all of these things, the individual, the societal, under the idea of you don't fear the Lord. They're riddled with rebellion individually and as a culture because they don't fear the Lord. It's been the chief complaint of Malachi's ministry ever since chapter one, verse six, where God says, where's my fear? See, when God's people don't fear him, we fall into all kinds of sin and stupidity and rebellion, don't we? I hope the diversity of this list here in verse five helps you see that we are all guilty lawbreakers because God gives his people a very high standard as individuals and he gives them very high standards as a community and he takes it seriously when people and systems operate without any fear of him. So he's going to send the purifier. He's going to send the refiner. Oh, so too, Church of Jesus in 2022. We need the refiner's fire. We need the launderer's soap. I hope this list brings you to conviction to help you, helps you see that you need to be purified as well. And then immediately I hope you're reminded of the gospel where you can say that thanks be to God that we know for certain what Malachi's people could just barely grasp. That this unbelievable act in verse 17 where they called evil good and good evil, that that actually wasn't the worst time that that happened. Rather, that took place at Jesus' trial when the holy, righteous, pure Jesus was condemned by the crowds who said, give us the murdering terrorist Barabbas instead. They called good evil and evil good. And then even later it happened worse at the cross where God himself, God the Father, looked at his pure, innocent son who knew no sin and he placed all of our sins on Jesus and labeled him the sinner. And then he killed him for it so he could look at you and I, sinners all, and call us holy. 
righteous, forgiven, adopted. See, we're made good because Jesus was made sin for us. And then the ultimate act of purification is Jesus Christ himself hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of his people. But when you place your faith and trust in him as the one who died and then rose again, his good becomes your good. His purity becomes your purity. Your continued failures and sins become his, and he died to pay the penalty for those sins. We call out for justice, which is great because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the grace is not that God ignores our sins. The grace is that Jesus paid those wages for us with his death. This is what Malachi's people could not know. They just knew somehow God's gonna fix this by fixing us. And now we know that God addressed the evil in the world by addressing the evil in us by Jesus becoming sin and being crucified for it. Uh, when you wonder what God's doing about the evil in the world, why the wicked prosper, look to the good, pure Son of God dying on the cross to heal the world. And you can know that whatever the answer is, God is intimately and painfully involved in it. He's purifying that evil out of creation through the work of his son, Jesus. This is Christianity. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, I hope you hear that this is Christianity. Not clean up and come to God, not be a good moral person, not vote a certain way, not live a certain way, not talk a certain way. It's come and recognize that you're sinful and you're deserving of justice before a holy God, but in Jesus you can be forgiven because he lived the life you should have lived and he died the death you deserve to die. And he was raised from the grave. Now embrace him even now. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord and you can be forgiven. Now let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before texts that talk of judgment, we confess, Lord, that it's hard. That we want to ignore, we want to make them go away especially those of us who are Christians, we want to act like they don't matter to us anymore. So Lord, I pray that you would even now bring conviction to your people. Show us, Lord, where in our thoughts, in our actions, we are impugning your character, where our lives are preaching that we don't trust you. We pray, Lord, that you would then help us to place all of that on, cross, on, on the cross on Jesus. What we're asking, Lord, is that you would help those of us who know you to repent and believe the gospel. And Lord, we ask today for those here who do not know you, that you would show them their need of your son. May they feel the weight of the guilt of their sin before you. And may they see for the first time that Jesus can lift that weight. And Lord, I pray that you would do your work even now of drawing many from death to life. Would you do your work, Lord, of building your kingdom? Lord, as we come now to this table, we pray, Lord, that this word of, of judgment and grace helps us once again appreciate that your body was broken for our sins, crushed for our iniquities, that your blood was shed to pay the penalty 
for our selfishness, rebellions, and failures so that we could be your daughters and sons. <laughs> we pray, Lord, that you would minister to us deeply as we close out this service, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.